Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there are countless books, films, even family stories about the many European immigrants who helped build New York City. But have you considered the impact of the Black diaspora? We'll talk with the founder of the Black Gotham Experience that's coming up. We'll also hear from a historical consultant based in Newport about what communities around the U.S. can learn from the successful stories of African Americans. Are these stories included in school history books today? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, we wanted to focus on the story of two Bridgeport sisters, Mary and Eliza Freeman. They live back in the 19th century. Our next guest knows their story well. She's someone we met on a Where We Live show we recorded in Bridgeport earlier this year. Maisa, Maisa Tisdale is president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Maisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So tell us more about Mary and Eliza Freeman. Many of us, I know I'd never heard of them until I met you earlier this year. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, Mary and Eliza Freeman were two sisters who were born in Derby, Connecticut. They were of mixed heritage, um, Pagusset and African-American. And interestingly enough, they were part of the settlers of Little Liberia, a community that was originally known as Ethiope. This community was a settlement of free people of color. And we know it looks as though they were trying to start a free community for African-Americans on American soil during slavery. Now, was it significant for them to have been born and raised in Derby, Connecticut, if not another city or town? Well, Derby at that time had a number of people who were um, of Pagusset and African-American descent. And most of, many of the black people in the state were scattered throughout areas that now seem a little bit more remote um, to us. When we think of people living in centers, And actually, the settlers of Little Liberia had to make a concerted effort to create um, an urban center for people of color at that time. So you fared better um, as a black person or as a native person if you lived together in a community with others um, like yourself. Now, how did they make their living? Well, Mary and Eliza Freeman, um, they commuted to New York City, believe it or not, where where Mary um, Mary was a cook. But they established themselves in Bridgeport after their brother Joel, who was one of the founders of the Little Liberia community. So after their mother passed away, they came to Bridgeport. They, they bought real estate. They sold the real estate, the family real estate in Derby, and they invested in real estate in Bridgeport with the help of their brother Joel. Mary um, sold off the land that she found. I guess there were outbuildings on the land when they got there. Then in turn, she turned that money over to Eliza, who bought the lot next to her basically the same day, and they began constructing on that site. How, how rare was it for these women to be um, buying and property and then with the help of their brother, but then building homes for themselves? 
Well, it wasn't so rare in Little Liberia. I can't address how rare that might have been outside, but we know that women as a whole didn't have the right to vote back then. And they were very much tied in traditional relationships with the men, the husbands in their lives. But the role of women in settlements of free people of color tended to be a little different than um, the roles of women in other communities because um, Little Liberia, like many of these communities, was a seafaring community. So the men were away most of the time and they brought the money back to the women the women developed the real estate, they ran businesses, um, and they also made mortgages um, and sold property to other people. Now, you mentioned Little Liberia. Tell us more about this neighborhood and uh, the significance of Joel Freeman with helping create this place for not only his sisters but others. Right. Back in the 1800s, um, it was very difficult if you were a black person to live as a free person in Connecticut. You had to show passes. You couldn't work everywhere. You couldn't own, always own weapons. Um, it was a lot like being black in apartheid South Africa. So most of the blacks who lived scattered throughout, like Trumbull and Stratford and other places, tended to live um, indigent. They, they didn't have a lot. So Joel Freeman, as a seaman, we find that there's a pattern through, throughout the um, Northeast where seamen actually established free communities of color. And Joel Freeman and many of the seamen in Little Liberia did the same thing. So you have to realize in 1820, so this is an antebellum black community, there was still slavery not only in the United States but in Connecticut itself. So it took a tremendous amount of audacity for people to say, we're going to establish this land where we can live with our families, where we can work at our God-given talents, and we can prosper. And it's, it's something that I, we can't take for granted. So, so Joel helped establish this land. His sisters came after their parents um, died. They were caregivers to their parents, and they settled here. Now, this was a community of free blacks, Native Americans, and also Haitians? Ah, it, well, it was really diverse. What's interesting mm -hmm. is that part of the reason that Joel Freeman um, called to the others to come is that they also didn't have a place to worship of their own. Back then, blacks had to um, worship in white congregations, and they were relegated to balconies, and the clergy decided whether they'd be baptized or not and what their what their situation would be in relationship to the religion. So the community used to gather together under a tree where the current Bridgeport Library is, and they used to worship together. And at that time, Joel said, you know, we need to establish a community and we need to establish a place where we worship. And they had begun buying these buildings and developing this land, and he invited people from all around his Pagusset relatives, as well as his African-American relatives, to come to this land. But interestingly enough, because they made their money sailing, they had relationships with other free communities of, of blacks throughout the Atlantic seaboard, and Joel put out a call for people to come and settle there. So it was a deliberate effort to request um, investment in the Little Liberia community. And as a result of that, people came from Jamaica, from Haiti, from Cape Verde, from all along the Northeast seaboard um, down to the Mid-Atlantic, and from places in New York, and they settled there. 
So it was a very interesting community indeed. Now, this community, a little Liberia, there were other Liberias that were also in development? Yeah, interesting. Um, there is a scholar. Her name is Dr. Jamila Moore-Pugh. And her dissertation was about how African-American people, people of the African diaspora during this period, viewed places and turned them into um, places of freedom. They tried to make places, geographical areas, meet their political and their political ideals and their cultural ideals. And so she found that there were places with Liberia in their place names in Canada, in the U.S., in Mexico, in, in the Caribbean, and of course, Liberia, the nation. And she wanted to figure out how much they knew about each other, whether they communicated with each other or whether they just embraced um, a, a spirit of freedom that would be natural, um, would occur naturally in people who had endured slavery and genocide. This is where we live. In studio with me today, Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. We're learning about these sisters, Mary and Eliza Freeman. They lived in the 19th century. Uh, they helped uh, with their family, uh, their brother rather, to create Little Liberia, this community for free blacks uh, and Native Americans, also some other uh, colonies that were um, Haitians as well, as you mentioned, that came and were able uh, to live in Little Liberia. Now, you mentioned also, Maisa, that uh, this was at a time when slavery still existed. Was it dangerous for them to have this community? That's an interesting question. I think that they, I don't know that it was dangerous for them to have this community, but I suspect from what we're learning that the community was involved in activities that would be considered dangerous because this community was a major crossroads for people who were seeking freedom. And they didn't ask you whether or not you were free coming into the community, but it certainly seemed that you were free passing through and leaving the community. I also understand that, uh, so their name was Freeman. Do mm -hmm. we know anything about the, their name and how it may have changed? Yeah, we do know a little bit. We know that their parents were not initially named Freeman. They were listed in Derby um, records as Hull, H-U-L-L, -L, and at some point their name mysteriously changed to Freeman. Um, but what, what we suppose is that many black people changed their name to Freeman, that they, they were bearing the names of um, slave masters from earlier generations and that they decided to change their name to Freeman. I also heard um, some commentary that Freeman was often taken as a name by people who did escape through the Underground Railroad. Um, changing names was quite common. So we know Little Liberia was founded in, around 1830, 1820. 1820. Mm -hmm. So how did that community change and the citizens that live there, how did they see their lives changing? Did they become more prosperous? Uh, they definitely became more prosperous. So we had in the community people who were shipbuilders. We had a whaling captain. Um, again, this tied to the sea. So the money came from different kinds of commercial endeavors that actually took advantage of the same triangle that we know um, that brought people in slavery. They were using that same triangle, trading with free people of color, and also deriving a, a living um, working at the sea. So they brought that money back, and they, they prospered. That community was really quite interesting. There was 
a seaside resort for wealthy blacks from New York City built right next to Eliza Freeman's house. And we think about it, a seaside resort. What was so interesting about that resort is that a correspondent, Frederick Douglass's Brooklyn correspondent for his newspaper, stayed in the hotel. And he was so enamored with it and so proud to see an enterprise of this scope and this scale um, built by black people that he wrote a letter to Frederick Douglass, which Frederick Douglass in turn published in his newspaper in 1854. And they hail this area as an up-and-coming place for blacks, that this will be a black city. And they were very proud of that. We're talking about the Freeman uh, sisters, again, learning about their history with Maiza Tisdale. Now, um, we should mention to our listeners, their homes are still there in Bridgeport. Exactly. But the rest of Little Liberia is not. I have a map in my hand, but because we're on the radio, mm-hmm. can you describe where these homes are when you visit Bridgeport, Connecticut? Yes. Yeah, so the homes are on South Main Street, so south of the railroad tracks, south of Harbor Yard, and very close to the Long Island Sound. If you look behind us, you'll see the coal stacks um, from PSEG and across from the old marina apartment site. So we're very close to the ferry landing. And people who park and go to the Long Island Ferry, well, they park in the lot right across from the houses. So the two houses are there um, standing on their original foundations, the same siding, the same materials. But there is another building that relate is related to that, and that's Walter's AME Zion Church. Walters is actually, their congregation is part of the original congregation of Little Liberia. And although that isn't the original church, it was built in the 1890s and it's sitting on the foundation of the origin of one of the original churches of Little Liberia. I should have asked you, Maisa, when did you become enamored with the story of the Freeman sisters? How'd you get involved in all this? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) All of us have come to this story in very personal ways. I first heard whisperings of it um, from Gilbert Davis, who was a librarian at the Bridgeport Library. And he used to share all kinds of uh, interesting information about the black community because he was in the library. And my mother and I used to come in to trace our our lineage um, to do our genealogy. And we found that our family, we found them in the Darien census in the 1880s, and we knew they were in Darien in the 1870s. And we found that they came to the south end of Bridgeport a little bit later after the 1880s. And Gilbert would say, you know, Charles Brilovich is doing this research about this community called Little Liberia. We also noticed that when we were looking through the census, there were an awful lot of mulattoes listed for that area. We're like, mulatto, mulatto, mulatto. This whole area seems to be made up of mulattoes and blacks. And we found it very interesting at the time. So my interest in the area actually started back early um, in the, the 1990s. And then there were two periods of time when people pulled together to save the houses from demolition. And I was involved with many other um, community um, advocates who were saving the houses. And so that's how I came to, to the houses and to the story. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Maisa Tisdale is in studio with us today as we explore the story of the Freeman Sisters, two African-American women who lived in Bridgeport in the 19th century. Coming up, a historical consultant will join us to talk about other efforts to unveil the stories of people of African descent. 
What stories of black Americans from our country's past should we be talking about? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're learning more about prominent blacks who helped build communities in Connecticut and in other parts of the country. Maiza Tisdale is in the studio with us. She's president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. And joining our conversation now by phone is Keith Stokes. He's vice president of the 1696 Heritage Group. It's a historical consulting firm based in Newport, Rhode Island. Keith, welcome to the show. Welcome. Good morning. I understand you have a connection to Bridgeport's Little Liberia. We learned about it, about it earlier in the show. Tell us about your connection. Oh, on my maternal side of the family, um, several of my ancestors were some of the earliest settlers in Little Liberia, and they lived uh, in that neighborhood and in Bridgeport between about 1835 to about 1910. Now, I mentioned you have a historical consulting firm. When did you learn about your family's connection to Little Liberia? Uh, it was always known. Uh, it wasn't called Little Liberia when I was very young. It was always called uh, the Free Black Community in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and it was very well known. In fact, um, I owned many heirlooms from the families that lived there at that time, particularly from the 19th century, that have been passed on to each generation. Um, there was a very strong sense of pride in our family to be able to trace ourselves as far back as we possibly could, but more importantly, to talk about our family history beyond slavery, the fact that many of us uh, who were free and lived free lives and owned our own businesses, owned our own homes, our own churches, um, and most importantly, we're self-sufficient. And unfortunately, that's a story sometimes that doesn't get told as much uh, in American history. When did this, uh, I guess, interest in telling the story really come to be, Keith, from your perspective? Well, you're born with it. Um, I mean, I, I'm fortunate to be born into a family that was very prideful of its African heritage, both maternal and paternal. And what we would do, what we call creative survival, is rather than depend upon schools to teach our black history uh, or the larger community, it was passed on by your parents and grandparents and, and family friends. So I grew up in an environment, as, as my kids have grown up in an environment, where we tried to surround ourselves with our heritage. Um, my, my general sense is too much of our African heritage and history is told through almost an owner's class interpretation. Um, and it's always important to tell history from the perspective of the people themselves. Uh, what Little Liberia represents, and, and I give all the credit to Mesa Tisdale and her team at the Freeman Center, it's, it's not only one of the most earlier free black communities in America, but most importantly, it's a story told by free people of color, African American, Native American, mixed heritage, and that's unique and it's very important. Maisa, would you like to expand on that? Because you also said earlier that you remember going with your mother to learn more about your lineage. Um, it really does begin within the family. It really does begin within the family. And I, I should also add that Keith's maternal ancestor actually sold Mary and Eliza their lots. <laughs> <laughs> so the story, this story has a lot of connections. And it it is very important to to claim this history. And I think that the the we have to thank Charles Brilvich for the the city historian at the time for uncovering this story 
and bringing the facts to life. But what we've found since then is that people like Keith and people like um, Jamil, Dr. Jamila Moore-Pugh, they have more information to add to the story and to the interpretation of the story. So what we hope is that the Freeman Center going forward will be the place where scholars bring their work, they do further research, and also where these lost, uh, these hidden chapters of African-American, Native American history, especially in the North, are disseminated and shared. So, yeah, I was also born to one of those families that believed that oral history was extremely important and that they had to pass on the stories. And because my mother's family has such deep roots in Connecticut going back to the 1870s, I remember my great aunts always sitting around and talking about Bridgeport, how it changed, who was where, when. And one aunt especially always saying, that P.T. Burnham, he just ruined Bridgeport. And I, I never really thought much about it. But if you think of the coming of industry into the south end of Bridgeport, where blacks and Native people had created this settlement, you see the dissipation and the breakup of this community as furniture factories and, and other industrial um, places are, are, are stuck in the mix. You also see the start, um, well, the, you also see more clearly the segregation that gave rise to other socioeconomic issues in Bridgeport later on, because although black people lived and settled that area, they weren't allowed to live in the new housing or work in the factories that began there in say, um, the eighteen the 1860s. Uh, Maisa, tell us more about when uh, Little Liberia began to fade away, some of the factors. You probably touched on some of them. It, I don't know that it ever completely disappeared. In fact, in a, okay, so it was there as a coherent whole on a map until basically 1857. And then you see factories come into the area and immigrants brought to the factory. And what I believe happened is that the industrialists and and P.T. Barnum, they realized that much of their wealth and revenue was drawn from industries and from different kinds of um, businesses that were related to slavery. And they saw that things were changing and that they had to find another way to make a living. Now, the land where blacks had settled, that was originally land that wasn't really wanted by whites. Um, Unlike today, there was a swamp behind it that was described as impenetrable. It was washed with water. Well, in the 1860s, you start to see um, industrialists start building and and filling in the land so that they can build. And so that had a a deleterious effect. Um, Also, we lost um, men to the Civil War. And people that the settlement also started to grow as well. So it had to push out into other areas, which also meant that other people found inroads into this traditional community. Now, Keith, today we're learning about Little Liberia in Bridgeport, but tell us more about some of the other free black communities that we're not hearing about in the Northeast. Well, there are a number of them. If if you think of history from a standpoint of people doing rational, reasonable things, um, free people of color, rationally and reasonably, look for communities where they would find safety um, and where they had ownership and a stake. So what you find is by the end of the 18th century into the early uh, 19th century, you have a number of northeast cities where these very similar to Little Liberia, these enclaves are established. 
Um, in Newport, it's called Negro Lane, a whole area where Africans own property. In Bristol, Rhode Island, it's called Little Gory. In Providence, it's Snowtown. Uh, in Boston, it's Beacon Hill. Um, you have it in New Haven. We have it in Bridgeport. So even Norwich, Connecticut. So you have a number of communities sprouting up in the early 19th century where free Africans, now African-Americans, second and third and fourth generation, in many cases they're intermarrying with native populations, um, thus the mulatto or the mixed heritage. So these communities are sprouting up all across the Northeast. And what they have in common is is they have a nexus of ownership. Men, women, and families own their homes and properties. There are black-owned businesses, particularly in the seafaring industry and barbering and catering and service industry. There is a black church. Um, and most importantly, it's an opportunity for blacks within the region to come and to do business. So it becomes this epicenter. And Little Liberia was the epicenter connecting black people from New England into the New York, even into and my ancestor. One came from Philadelphia in 1860 to relocate to Little Liberia. So these were very commonplace, and they were part of a network of what we call creative survival, again, where people were looking for safety and ownership. Unfortunately, we sometimes talk so much about slavery, which is an important element to understand, but it also overwhelms the recognition of the fact that there were many people of color who persevered and succeeded despite slavery, despite Jim Crow. And Little Liberia is a testament to that success. Now, your work, Keith, as well as Maisa Tisdale, uh, bringing attention uh, to these communities that you just mentioned, are these being taught in schools today? Any changes? Well... <laughs> so do I yet, hear, do I hear you laughing, Keith? <laughs> well, in, in Rhode Island, I, I wrote legislation a few years ago to begin the process of introducing a African-American history curriculum. Um, and we're now working with a consortium of historical societies to begin to kind of design the unit, unit of instructions and design. Um, I think the challenge sometimes is, is that um, we see black history in this isolated month of February when it's really a dynamic and integrated system. Um, I'm finding that there are historical societies across the country, particularly here in New England, they're doing a wonderful job of integrating what isn't just simply black history, this is American history. I mean, Africans are some of the earliest settlers and participants in the building of the New World. So how could you know the history of Bridgeport or New Haven or New London without knowing the history of Africans and Native people? So my sense is, is that it is moving forward. Um, slower than we would like. But most importantly, I think there's a whole new set of scholars out there who are recognizing the fact that the more they learn about early black and native history, the more they're going to learn about their own community and their own country. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Keith Stokes, vice president of the 1696 Heritage Group. It's a historical consulting firm based in Newport, Rhode Island. In studio, Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Today we're learning about uh, Little Liberia in Bridgeport, a community of for free blacks and others. And Keith Stokes is telling us more about um, these communities and this, the importance of this history uh, in the Northeast. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Maisa, uh, in Bridgeport, because since for several years now you've been working on this. Yeah, quite a long time. Politicians are interested in it. Uh, historic preservationists have gotten on board. What's happening in the schools? Any interest there? There is interest in the schools. I mean, we're a little bit shorthanded, and someone needs to write the curriculum. But we're hoping to correct that. We have an um, exhibition coming up, an art, architecture, and history exhibition. And as part of that, 
Um, our digital curator is also creating um, curriculum. And so we hope to make that available to the schools. It will be online, and we, we want people to be able to use this. I think there's great interest by teachers. There just hasn't been the curriculum for them to follow. And a lot of that interest stems from the fact that these two homes of these sisters are still standing. That can be a challenge in other parts of the country where uh, these places have been demolished or are no longer there. Exactly. And that's what makes Bridgeport so unique in, in that these houses are really standing. Because the communities happen to be in urban centers, um, most of our our real estate, again, as Keith was saying, property was really important to these communities. It was plowed under. It, urban renewal just just took these communities off the map. So Mary and Eliza's house, the houses, the fact that they're standing is extremely significant. So they're rare. And the, and the National Trust for Historic Preservation has recognized them as rare. They're on the National Register of Historic Places. And it'll take about a million and a half um, dollars to restore them. The idea isn't so much to have house museums, although that's what the community wants, because you don't see African-Americans and Native people portrayed um, in the 1800s. People actually want to walk into those houses and experience those times. But what we'd like them to be is the centerpiece of a national historic site that focuses on research and also telling the story and acts as a place where the scholars who are scattered throughout the diaspora can actually um, find their peers and share their stories and put them together in a way that allows it to be used as curricula um, for all Americans and, and not just African Americans. And Keith, as a historical consultant, what kinds of artifacts uh, do you have from these free black communities that could help people, um, to help spark their interest in these stories? Oh, we, on a personal level, we have many heirlooms from family members directly from Little Liberia. I mean, we've got furniture, books, um, personal silverware. Um, I have a family's wedding uh, cups from 1862 there. So we, we have a large number of, of, of items and artifacts. And as I've told Maisa, we'd love to be in a position to share some of them um, to be able to complement the work she's doing and have on display so that, um, and she's exactly right, so that young people of color get to say, wow, people who look like me and worship like me um, and have my background also lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, or in Connecticut, or in America in 1850 and 1860, and here's their lives. And, and I think that's the most exciting aspect of it is, is that there, there's been this sense that there's not enough primary documentation to support African-American history uh, or actual physical relics or heirlooms, when in fact there are many access to items uh, in primary search documents that can be shared. I think the, the most important aspect is is connecting the items and the research with the historic place. And I can tell you, consulting all around the country in the West Indies, one of the great challenges of interpreting history is authenticity. Mm. It's very important to have an authentic place. And what the Eliza and Mary Freeman houses and where they're situated represent is an authentic interpretation of real buildings that real people lived in in a real neighborhood. Um, that, that is rare, and that is a significant asset that I think 
all of Connecticut should embrace and support. Now, Keith, you were just in Bridgeport recently uh, to speak at a, a fundraiser for this Little Liberia project. Uh, Maisa uh, told me uh, off mic that this was standing room only. So there's interest in the community, but it also takes dollars. I just heard Maisa say a lot of money to restore <laughs> the, the Freeman houses. So is that the biggest challenge? Well, it's, you know, the capital expense is always the, the first challenge coming out of the box, but then it's sustainability. Uh, and as Maisa pointed out, uh, on one part, you want to have a living house museum interpretation so that people and young people can touch and see and experience the lives of people loved before. On the other hand, it has to be sustainable. So I have found and I've consulted on projects where there are mixed-use activities. There are historic uses. There are more commercial uses that help subsidize endowments that support the operation. So what you need is a comprehensive plan and approach. But, but the first point is you've got to have absolute leadership. And it's absolutely essential that the people of Connecticut and the elected officials of Connecticut embrace their asset. This is not a New York asset. This isn't a Rhode Island asset. This is a Connecticut asset. And the people have to stand behind it. Let's talk about that um, more. Maisa Tisdale, again, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. You've been working many years to uh, restore these homes, to save them. What are some other challenges where they're located in terms of environmental factors and then with uh, funding to help you know, get the, the property up to shape? Well, there's a term that's used in the preservation community. They they talk about endangered properties. And then the Mary and Eliza Freeman houses, whether officially designated as endangered properties, endangered resources, they are endangered, um, both because they need the restoration. Um, and back in, in 2012, we did temporary stabilization of the houses, and we sealed them up fairly well with the idea that the restoration would move forward in a year or two. And for different reasons, that didn't happen. So that's one challenge, that just keeping the houses um, shored up and closed up from the um, weather. We are in an area where it floods. And there are flood hazard mitigations and and resilience um, projects going on in our neighborhood. So the Mary and Eliza Freeman houses, of course, they've withstood their share of storms. And actually, they, and I'm knocking on wood, they, um, they weathered Sandy pretty well. Um, but it's also because, interestingly enough, they're built really high. And one of the houses sh- shows evidence perhaps of even having been raised during construction. So I don't know if there was a storm then and one of the sisters said, hey, these ought to be a little bit higher. I don't know. But they're, they're withstanding the weather. But they will deteriorate and they need to be saved. Um, one of the other things is the pressure in the community for development and the notion of who actually has the right to determine land use in an area, the people or, um, or maybe developers. And not all developers see the land as we see the land, which is interesting because as it turns out, that was an issue, the same issues that we're facing today, whether the land is industrialized or um, gentrified, the same issues that the people of Little Liberia faced in the 1800s. And so we're, we're actually, um, there's a continuity be- between those kinds of issues. So we need to work in harmony 
with the developers who are coming to the area as well um, and who perhaps don't know or maybe don't even respect the history of African and indigenous peoples because the history of our people is written in the ground um, in the way the streets are arranged, the closeness to the resources. And that perception that we have, the history that we carry because we carry the oral history, is not a history that's necessarily recognized by um, politicians or developers to the area. So we need to educate them. I met wonderful people who um, established the African burial ground in New Hampshire. Um, and one of the things that the woman said, and they're from Portsmouth, is that she said it took us, I believe it was 12 years before they actually um, had the, the burial ground set up. And she said, don't be upset, Maisa, because it's taking time. She said, time is actually your friend because you need that time to educate people and bring them along on this cultural journey so that your project is embraced as part of the cultural heritage of everyone and not just the, the people on the block or people who are related to, to these assets. And she said, so time will be your friend. And don't fear time because you're bringing people along. At the same time, political leadership changes during Absolutely. these decades. <laughs> Is there interest by the uh, Mayor Ganim administration, Governor Malloy's administration to save these homes? Well, I have an <laughs> embarrassing silence, right? <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard much from the Malloy um, administration regarding these houses. The Ganim administration actually submitted a request um, to the state um, for an entire cultural corridor, which is many, 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 many millions of dollars. And they, they um, placed the Mary and Eliza Freeman um, houses in that corridor. But we have been adversely affected by um, the budget changes and cutbacks and programs, um, community reinvestment funds that come to us from the Connecticut Trust and other organizations um, that fund preservation projects. So um, we, we are, we've been hurt by cutbacks and funds. So I'm hoping that our politicians will stand up for us and also assist us in the process. So the Ganem administration, um, the Office of um, Planning and Economic Development, they have reached out to us to try to help. Um, we also, f um, we also are, are very conscious of uh, being cited for a blight, but the, the blight sightings have now been um, revoked and we're, we're working with, we're hoping to continue working with um, OPED. Um, they seem to be open and actually quite happy um, to move forward with us on this project. Oh, we're going to need to go to break soon, but I wanted to go back to Keith Stokes, vice president of the 1696 Heritage Group, a historical consulting firm based in Newport, Rhode Island. Keith, we, we hear about uh, Connecticut's uh, budget issues and the lack of, of uh, government money that can help save places like the, the Freeman Homes. Is the, the, the future for these kinds of places uh, in the hands of private citizens or take interest? Well, there have always been public-private partnerships. Um, to support uh, the interpretation, restoration, and, and preservation of historic sites and stories. But uh, for the most part, uh, the larger institutions have done better because of their network of funders and support base. Smaller institutions, which 
historically a number of ethnic and racial historic organizations tend to be smaller, don't have those networks yet. That takes time. Um, I think the starting point is to increase the awareness in the historic value of the site. And in a case of the Eliza Mary Freeman House, if George Washington had slept there, because we know he slept everywhere <laughs> during his time, um, everyone would be rushing around preserving those homes. It wouldn't be an issue. Um, what we need to do is we need to be able to elevate the history of black history and native history, and we need to really bring it to the people. It's the people who need to come forward and tell their elected officials um, that this is a priority. And the more that we can do to build a base and a groundswell of students, of young people, of people who can really recognize the importance of preserving these homes, that begins to build that base. Um, there's no shortcuts to historic preservation. Um, it's a long grind. Uh, Valerie Cunningham in New Hampshire, uh, who Amaisa talked to, is a great friend. I've worked with her. She's had me come up and looked at her facilities. And she's probably one of the greatest examples of a person who built a concept, which was an African burying ground in downtown Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from an idea, and then built a groundswell of people over a long period of time, and then raised well over a million dollars. And I, ha I believe she has one of the finest memorials um, of American history um, in the country in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So it is a long grind, but it starts with the people. And the more people we can build a groundswell around, um, then the elected officials and the larger corporations respond because they see it either as votes or as customers. And that's really what drives both of those institutions. Well, Keith Stokes, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you. Now, Maisa Tisdale, president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. We understand there's an upcoming exhibit. We're going to put information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, an exhibit that teaches people all about Little Liberia. So we thank you. We're really excited about this exhibit. It's called Reimagining Little Liberia, Restoration and Reunion. And we asked the scholars who write 800-page write dissertations, how do we share this with the community? And they said, how about an exhibit? So we're using artists who will interpret the feeling and the primary documents and show the process of both preservation and scholarship. So it will be at Housatonic University. We're beginning to mount it now. The, there will be a preview of the first portion on September 7th. Well, thank you again, Maisa Tisdale. And we'll have more information about that exhibit on our website. And we'll tweet it out, too. Thank you. Thank you, Maisa. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we shift to the Big Apple and find out more about the people we don't hear about often who help build New York City. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been looking back at history, history not often told about black Americans and their contributions to communities from Bridgeport, Connecticut to Newport, now New York City. Joining us from NPR's Midtown Manhattan studios is Kamau Ware, founder and lead creative at Black Gotham Experience. Uh, Kamau, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, I understand about a decade ago, you were working as an educator at, the, at New York's Tenement Museum, and it was there where you decided to embark on this, this, new, um, this new experience, Black Gotham experience. Tell us about that moment. Well, it was one of those situations where you just feel awkward in public, uh, and I think that vulnerability and being humble is an important part of being intelligent and uh, allowing those things to hit you. And I was giving a tour to a, a student group in uh, 2008, 
And I wasn't considering in that context that there was an all black student group. I was just thinking about them as, you know, kids, so to speak. And um, the tour was not about black history, um, but that's not unusual for the tenement. There's a lot of people come from all over the place for the museum. And at the end of the tour about German, Jewish, and Italian families, one of the young ladies who was quiet the entire tour asked that profound, simple question after 90 minutes, which was, where are the black people? And in that moment, I was like, wow, I didn't bring that up once. And it was like, those those stories should be spoken of and more understood. So where did you begin to tell those stories? You know, it's, it's a little funny because it was, you know, I, hiding in plain sight, right? There's, there was there was a series of books in the visitor center that br- you know could bring a lot to the conversation that you know is happening already about the 1800s, 1900s, and so uh, there was a historical society exhibition called Slavery in New York that I saw when I first got to New York in 2006, and so I saw the book that came along with that exhibition, and I took that book home and began just reading all the different essays and just beginning to like open up my context for black people in New York beyond Harlem and just going back to the 1620s when black people were coming off of pirate ships instead of slave ships to help build the foundation to New Amsterdam before the idea of New York existed, before the idea of the United States existed, before founding fathers were even born was like a bit just a major eye-opener, and I wanted to share that a lot more with people. Now, through Black Gotham Experience, you're giving walking tours. What has been the reaction to some of the stories that you tell along the way? I think people, well, that's a great question because I'm going to put myself in that mix. I I often have eye-opening moments, too, because there's a lot of research, there's a lot of information, but these are conversations, especially considering that I was inspired by a, a question. And so one thing that I've had as an aha moment consistently with me as well as with others is just how much there's this, there's this um, hidden century between the beginning of New York when you have the transition in power from New Amsterdam to New York up until, the you know, the the beginning of the American Revolution before the Stamp Act is passed, a lot of people don't realize that that century is pretty much void of media, of retelling, or of even telling, or even artifacts. It's it's, it's kind of like a black hole. And when you begin to illustrate that we don't have a lot of resources or information or visual aids to help us understand this time period, people kind of pause and think like, wow, I, I, I've never seen any kind of plays or movies or paintings or etchings that show what life looked like for that entire 100-year period. And so the walking tour is about reconstructing that or often constructing it for the first time for people who might be 12, might be 60. So it's it's a fascinating artistic process because you really have to build setting and character and use your senses and your imagination to see what's not in front of you, but is guided by the streets. Now, you don't stop there with these walking tours through Black Gotham Experience. I understand you're embarking on graphic novels to tell these stories. Uh, tell us about that, Kamau. Yeah, well, it's the project has taken shape pretty much by things that I, I love. You know, I love black history, and I love people. I love conversation. And when I was a youngster, I loved the ElfQuest graphic novels and continued to appreciate other comics as well. And I thought that it would be cool to start to create artifacts that do not exist since artifacts aren't denoted or that they're not they're not qualified by time alone. And instead of 
going 100 years in the future or 500 years in the future and never having this void approached, I was like, what if we use, you know, photography and fashion and design to actually create these images and find a way to bring that into a two-dimensional experience on the page? And I think that the graphic novel is a fantastic, flexible medium to tell stories that are historic, that are fantasiful, that multiple age groups can appreciate that can be easily adapted into other forms of media. So I'm, I'm having a lot of fun doing something that I never really quite imagined I'd be doing 10 years ago, walking towards graphic novels, events, exhibitions, and just, you know, having fun talking about things that have typically been difficult for people to talk about, which is interesting, but also exciting. It's a really interesting podcast, uh, The Bowery Boys, uh, where they interview you, and we learn about some of these these communities that we don't hear about in New York City, uh, such as Seneca Village and what happened to it after uh, Central Park was built. Uh, so I want to point our listeners to that podcast uh, to hear more. We're almost out of time, Kamau, and I'd love to have you back uh, with more uh, with these graphic novels uh, as you finish them to, so we can hear more of these stories. Cool. I'd be glad to be back. Kamau Ware, again, he is the founder and lead creative at Black Gotham Experience. He joined us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. And if people wanted to check out Black Gotham Experience when they're in New York, Kamau, where do they go? Well, they can go to 192 Front Street between Fulton and John Street. Thanks to our friends at the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council and Howard Hughes Corporation. We have like 2,000 square feet of space to show our stories, have events, and work on our graphic novel series and meet before our walking tours and host our teen tours, etc. So it's a great way to meet the project firsthand. So we're there Thursday through Sunday and our walking tours are Thursday through um, Saturday. And we'll put more information. Uh, we'll tweet that out and put it on our website. But again, Kamau Ware, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Learn more about this show at WNPR.org slash where we live. And coming up on Thursday, we're going to tell you more about the Radium Girls. And that's Thursday on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>